Good morning. How kind is God to address us from his word authoritatively, clearly. I want to invite you to turn with me to Romans chapter 3. We're going to be in the last few verses at the end of this chapter, Romans 3, 27 through 31. And if you are physically able, I want to invite you to stand with me. We do this as an expression of our humble disposition before God. We want to receive his word with humility. That's the only right way to receive it, to trust every word that comes from his mouth with no reservations. Romans 3, 27 through 31, this is God's word. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We love your word. And so we receive this. We believe it and we ask for the help of your spirit in understanding it, applying it, that we might leave here this morning with renewed confidence in Jesus. That's a work of your spirit. Do that for your glory and for our good, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Last week, we were in Romans 3, 21 through 26, the paragraph right before this, and we answered the all-important question, what does God think of you? How does God view you? How does he relate to you? For as John Calvin said, unless you understand first of all what your position is before God and what the judgment is that he passes upon you, you have no foundation upon which your salvation can be laid. First and foremost, you have to know, how does God see me? Is he angry at me? Is he displeased with me? Is he annoyed with me? And we saw that Paul declares with clarity the gospel of justification by grace, through faith, in Jesus Christ alone, that God himself has provided his own son to be the sin-canceling, wrath-removing sacrifice so that God can preserve his perfect justice and condemn all sin in his son while simultaneously justly declaring that you are perfectly righteous in his sight, that all your sins are forgiven, that you are completely acquitted, that you have, you possess the right to enjoy God forever. And all of that is through Jesus, God justifies every sinner who trusts in Jesus. And we concluded Romans 3, 21 through 26 by saying that faith is the only right response to God's free and full forgiveness in Christ. Faith is the only right response 
to God's free and full forgiveness in Christ Jesus because God justifies the one who believes. And our text this week flows right out of that and reinforces that claim. And Paul does that by briefly answering three questions or objections that might arise from this proclamation of the gospel that you're made right with God through faith and faith alone in Jesus. And on the surface, the three questions Paul raises here might sound unrelated, but they're, they're tied together by a single thread, justification by faith. That, that's what ties all of these together. So under the first question, verse 28, Paul says, for we hold that one is justified by faith. Justified by faith apart from the law. And under the second question, he's going to say in verse 30, there is only one God and that God justifies the, uncircum- or the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through, as the NIV says, that same exact faith. Verse 31, Paul asks the question, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By, by teaching justification by faith, do we overthrow the law. So what I want you to see there is all of the the questions and objections Paul's dealing with here have to do with driving home this point. You are made right with God by faith and faith alone. He's responding to the questions to remove every obstacle and every barrier that might come up. He's doing this to defend and approve his claim. You are forgiven. You are acquitted of all your sin. You have access to God, to his presence, to fullness of joy in Christ forever You are justified by faith alone. And proving that is essential. Convincing you of that is important because every false religion on earth, every other way of relating to God on earth, whether it's some pagan cult or another major world religion in the world. Every other way of attempting to relate to God does not simply try to reach out to God, but actually is a way of exalting ourselves over God, trying to earn something from God, trying to put God into our debt so that he owes us what it is that we want from him. False religion proves that fallen humans prefer to relate to God in this way, in a system of merit, some transactional relationship. I'll do this for you if you pay me back for what I do for you. That's how fallen human beings always relate to God. And there are tons of different meritorious systems invented by man and promoted by demons, but Nothing else on earth is even in the same realm as this gospel of justification by faith. And I mentioned that quote last week that's often attributed to Martin Luther. I preach the gospel of justification by faith every week because every week my people forget it. Even inside the Christian church, that tendency exists to relate to God on some system of merit. This is what I deserve. This is what I've earned. Relating to God transactionally. Even if you've been a Christian for for years or, or for decades, do you ever find yourself 
falling back into that way of relating to God? Catch yourself reading your Bible thinking, just, just trying to prove I'm, I'm, I really mean it. The Spirit of God knows all of this. Our weakness, our sin, our default to relate to God as though we can earn something from Him. And so the Spirit of God inspired these particular verses just to further persuade you that the only way to be right with God is by faith and faith alone. The only way to, re- to be right with God, not, not only is that the only way to be right with God, it's actually the only way ever to relate to God at all. It's not just where you start out, you start by faith and then you figure out how to add works in because you've heard, you know, faith, we're saved by faith alone, but faith isn't alone, so somehow works have to come out. So how do I produce those? Th- this causes a lot of confusion for Christians for years and years in their lives. But Paul is making the claim here that the only way to relate to God ever is by faith and faith alone. You start by faith, you progress by faith, you finish by faith. It's the only way to approach God. It's the only way to please God. It's the only way to relate to Him. And it will never change. Forever and ever and ever, the people of God will simply be relying on God to be our God and to do for us all that he's ever promised to do. The only way to relate to God is to wholeheartedly rely on God. Or to say it another way, the entire Christian life is lived by faith. And any attempt to relate to God other than relying on him and receiving from him is actually sin. So Paul can say toward the end of this letter in Romans 14, 23, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. It's wrong to relate to God in any way other than simply receiving from him all that he promises, all that he gives. And in Romans 3, 27 through 31, we're given three reasons. Three reasons that wholehearted reliance on God is the only possible way to relate to God. We, we need these reasons because we are prone to self-reliance. We need these reasons because we default to thinking that there, there's some system of merit. We, we've got to earn something from God. We're, we're prone to doubt. We're, we're prone to ask ourselves again and again this morbid introspection, am I, am I doing it right? And we start to think that faith means trying to convince God rather than being convinced by God. So we need these reasons that the Spirit of God gives us here. And and, and here they are, my, my three headings. Only faith humbles, only faith unites, and only faith obeys. Those are the three reasons Paul gives here. First reason that wholehearted reliance on God is the only way to relate to God is that only faith Humbles. I like how the NIV words, verses 27 through 28, I think they capture the sense of the text with the, the question right off the bat, where then is boasting? Where is it? Where is human boasting? It's excluded. It's impossible. Because of what law? What system of relating to God makes boasting impossible? The, the law that requires works? No, Because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. So Paul is contrasting two different laws, two different ways of relating to God. The works of 
the law of works and the law of faith. The, the law of works fuels human pride and just stokes it into a raging fire. But the law of faith actually excludes all pride, all boasting. It makes human pride absolutely impossible. It can't exist under the law of faith. The law of works is a legalistic misrepresentation of the law that God gave to his people Israel. It takes God's commands and reads them as a job description that details the work a person can do to earn payment from God and achieve something to boast about. Just a few verses in Romans 4, the text Greg will preach next week. Romans 4, 4, Paul says, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. When you get your paycheck, you don't think, wow, what a generous employer I have who gave me this kind gift. If you get a bonus, maybe, but when you just get what your wages are, you got what you earned, you got what you deserve. So, I mean, you clock in, you expect to be compensated, right? That's the system of relating to God Paul calls the law of works. And that's how so many people relate to God. They think that by fulfilling the works God requires, they are rendering billable services to God. Billable services. Meeting some need, providing some service to God, and I I intend to send that invoice and collect payment in due time. Which is why self-righteous, legalistic people, when they're trying to cash in on that invoice down the road, things aren't going the way they want in life, they tend to complain to God, how could you do this to me? After everything I've done for you, everything I've given you, all the hours I've spent in church and all of the Bible reading, this is what I get from you? Because they think they've got all these invoices sitting there collecting interest now, not paid back. That's how legalism relates to God, rendering billable services to him. But if that's how you relate to God, transactionally, then A law of works would never remove boasting. It would only increase boasting. The more you do for God, the more grounds you have for boasting and taking pride in the work that you've done for him. And boasting is the telltale mark of all legalism and all false religion. The sense of superiority, being better than other people because you're just, you're doing the work better And Paul's going to tell us in Romans 4 too, if God owes you wages for the work you've done, then you have something to boast about. It's true. But it is absolutely unthinkable that the triune God of Scripture would ever have given to his creatures a meritorious system by which they were supposed to earn something from him. God is not, God can never be beholden to anyone. God owes no one anything, Romans 11.35. Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid by him? You, You couldn't possibly give something to God in order to put him into your debt. So when the people of Israel were gathered together and David was collecting all of the material that was going to be used to build the temple, 
Israel, the, the people just came in willingly, generously. The emphasis in the text in First Chronicles is on how, how freely they gave gold and silver and precious jewels and all of these things to the construction of the temple. And when they gathered all together, and David prays this prayer of dedication in First Chronicles 29, 14, he prays, but who am I? And what is my people that we should be able thus to offer willingly? What a question. Who are we even to get to give like this? For all things come from you and of your own have we given you. That is a thoroughly biblical worldview. When I have given, I have not given anything to God that he needs. In fact, all I've done is given back to him what's already his. Of your own have we given to you. So how could it ever be that giving back to God what's already his could possibly earn anything from him? Do you get that? That's why the very thought that we should ever or could ever earn something from God is not only absurd, it's evil. It's sinful because it belittles the greatness of God's glory and his generosity and it assumes that we have something to offer him that didn't first come from him. And every false religion is built on that idea that we can render billable services to God, put him in our debt so that he has to repay us. But what does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 4, 7? What do you have that you did not receive? And if then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Boasting is the mark of all false religion. When Paul was preaching to the men of Athens on Mars Hill in Acts 17, he said this, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands. Ever. He's not as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. How could we put him in our debt? Every breath you take with which you perform any so-called works is actually just taking you deeper and deeper and deeper into debt to him because the breath in your lungs is from him. The lungs that hold the breath are from him. Everything we have is from him. And so a law of works produces arrogant, self-sufficient people who look down on each other and on God. The law of faith, however, makes boasting impossible. In this system, there's no room for boasting. And in fact, God's law has always called for faith. It's always required that people rely on God, not that they attempt to perform meritorious works for God. Even the Ten Commandments were a law of faith, not of works. First, God rescued people out of slavery in Egypt. First, He redeemed them. And then He gave them the law. So before they had done anything in obedience to God, He had already delivered them. Lest they think that somehow their obedience to God deserved this deliverance from God. Exodus 20, 
verses 1 through 3, as God himself introduces the Ten Commandments, God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God, who already brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. First commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Why? Because I'm already your God. So God takes the initiative toward his people, and then he calls them to relate to him in a particular way by relying on him. Now, that law did not come with heart change. And so that law was not capable of accomplishing what God does in the new and better covenant through Jesus. But the law called for faith and it exposed, this is what it did, it exposed the depth of human pride and arrogance as Israel took God's good law that called for people to rely on him and twisted it into a system of relating to God and earning things from God. Listen to how the author of Hebrews says this in Hebrews 4, 2. For good news, literally the, the Greek word, same word we translate, gospel. Gospel came to us just as to them. And that's speaking about Israelites who had left Egypt with Moses. That's who he's talking about. Gospel came to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them. Why? Because they were not united by faith with those who listened. What did it call for? Faith. They didn't believe. And so there was no benefit to them. Paul makes the same point in Romans 9, 31 and 32. Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Not because God gave them a bad way of relating to him, but because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They twisted it, and they related to God as though they could earn something from him, when all along God has called people to trust in him. I think John Piper states this helpfully when he says, the Christian gospel is not a help-wanted sign, but a help-available sign. Those are two dramatically different ways of relating to God. That's the fundamental difference between the law of works and the law of faith. The the law of works turns God's revelation into a help-wanted ad. The law of faith receives the gospel as a help-available offer. Just think about what happens when a business owner puts out help-wanted signs He's saying, I need help. I can't keep up with the demands of all the customers or all the orders that I'm getting, and I need help. And if you'll come help me, I will pay you. I'll compensate you for your time and your skill. And then you get a job description that tells you what to do to help the owner. And then you earn your wages. But the law of faith is is different. It does not request help. It promises help. Just imagine a lawyer, skilled, competent, knowledgeable, who offers his services pro bono without payment to clients who are in legal trouble. Who's in need there in that relationship? Not the lawyer. He's just fine. But the clients of his who are in legal trouble, they're the ones in need. They need his expertise. They need his skill. And he might say to them something like, I will represent you. I will defend you. I will argue your case. In fact, I can get all these charges dropped if you rely on me. 
and let me do the work. You just sit there and don't say anything. In fact, if you say anything, it's going to hurt. So just sit there and rely on me and let me go to bat for you, and you're going to be just fine. If you are in legal trouble and you hear a a skilled lawyer say, you're going to be just fine, trust me, I've got this, what does that do to you? What a relief. You're the one in need. He's the one with skill. That's how the law of faith works. When the lawyer says, sit there and don't say anything, oh, and maybe gather a couple documents and bring in for me, that's not work you're rendering to him to meet some need in him so that he owes you something. That's just you trusting. Okay, I'll, I'll do what you say because I trust you. You get the order? I do what you say because I trust you. I take you at your word. And then he does all the work. That's how the law of faith works. And who gets the glory? If, if you're the client and your lawyer wins your case, you don't have anything to boast about. Your only boast is going to be, I know a really good lawyer. And if you're ever in legal trouble, let me tell you about him. Right? All your boast is redirected. I was in trouble. I, I was the one who was caught. He's the one with all the skill. It's his expertise. It's his generosity. Paul is saying, when we maintain that one is justified by God through faith alone, that way of relating to God leaves no room for human boasting. Only possible way to relate to God rightly is to rely on God completely. God is the one who does all the work. He takes all the initiative, and he does it in such a way that there's, there's no room left for your pride. You, you know Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. Why? So that no one can boast. Paul says the same thing again in 1 Corinthians 1. This comes up again and again. God saves in this way because it's the only possible way we could ever rightly relate to him that totally excludes all of our pride and boasting. Only faith humbles you before God. That's the first reason that trusting in God is the only way to relate to God. Second reason is this. Only faith unifies In verses 29 through 30, Paul raises a challenge of his own. He says he's carrying on this imaginary debate with a a Jewish opponent, and he asks the question, he poses the challenge, or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. So Paul challenges those who want to relate to God based on some distinction in them. And he says, is God the God of Jews exclusively, to the exclusion of everyone else? That kind of elitism, exclusivism, is a symptom that grows out of that pride where we started. Listen to C.S. Lewis. He calls pride the great sin. He says, pride gets no pleasure out of having something only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. 
If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. And so if you're relating to God in a meritorious system, it makes sense then that you take particular comfort in being better than other people, having some distinctive about you that puts you in the right with God while other people don't have that. It's one thing to rejoice at being in relationship with God. It's another to look down your nose at everybody else and take such pride in how much better you are than them. And so Paul takes aim at this sinful feature of false religion by citing a passage from Deuteronomy 6.4 that's called the Shema, Hebrew word that means hear, first word in this passage. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And Jews, when they hear him say, God is one, they would have known immediately what he was talking about because they recited this verse every day. Every day. There is no more axiomatic thought in the Jewish mind than this claim, God is one. And so Paul builds common ground. You know that, you agree with that, God is one. No other God exists, no other being who does exist is anything like God And then he argues, since God is one, then the only possible way for all people to relate to him is to rely on him and not some distinctive in themselves. Certainly, there are not other gods for other peoples on earth. He's appealing to the Jews who would agree with that. There's only one God. And... The Jews knew God had made a covenant with Abraham and promised that God would bless all the nations of the earth through Abraham and his offspring. How could that be? If God relates exclusively with people who possess some special characteristic, if Jewishness is required to relate to God, then there's no way for non-Jews to be in relationship with God. If God is only the God of those who have some certain mark or feature, whether it's their ethnicity or their gender or their class or their intelligence or their wealth, then God is not the God of the whole world. But if the way to be right with God is by relying on God, then any human being in the world has access to that offer. He justifies all who believe. And throughout Romans, we've already been reminded over and over that all have sinned, no one is righteous. It's one thing to say we're all equally guilty. I mean, even Christians have some sense. They're like, hey, nobody's perfect. We all know we're equally not perfect. It's another thing to say anyone can be made right with God by relying on God who has provided the sacrifice in his son Jesus. And therefore, everyone who's in relationship with God is on equal footing because we all come in the exact same way. Paul says in verse 30, there's only one God, this is the NIV again, because it captures that the Greek has this emphasis at the end, there's only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Not a different kind of faith, not a faith in something else, not a different one way to save the Jews and a different way to save Gentiles, God is one, and since he's one, there's only one Lord, there's only one salvation, there's only one faith, there's only one body, there's only one baptism, and no one can claim any advantage. There's no VIP status. There are no second-class citizens. No one is more or less justified. 
only way in is by relying on Jesus, which takes the focus off. There's got to be something in me that I come up with first. I, I rely on Jesus. And so then you find within the church a great diversity of people who are all trusting in the same Savior. And justification by faith, then, is the grounds for our unity. That's why we say all the time, the gospel is the foundation. Everything else about our life together flows out of this fact that God has made a way for all of us to be right with himself through Jesus, by grace, through faith. That's the foundation of our unity and our gospel community. And it's why relying on God wholeheartedly is the only way to relate to God. Third reason. Only faith obeys. In verse 31, Paul anticipates an objection, probably one that he regularly encountered when he preached the gospel to Jews. So he raises the question, do we, that is we who preach this justification by faith, do we then overthrow the law by this faith that we preach? Do we overthrow the law? Do we reject it? Do we nullify it? Do we invalidate the law? So follow Paul's logic. Paul, you're making dangerous claims here. You're claiming people are right with God by trusting in God, relying on Him, and not by what they do to follow the laws and commands that God gave. If you're saying, Paul, chapter 3, verse 20, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in His sight. If you're saying, Paul, chapter 3, 21, that the Righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. If you're insisting, here in verse 28, one is justified by faith apart from works of the law, it sounds, Paul, like you are anti-law. And that's going to produce lawlessness. That's going to produce disobedient people. And we can't have that. that. That could not possibly be right. The faith that you are espousing is going to embolden people in their rebellion against God. So just right off the bat, that can't possibly be true. That, that's a, you, you get why that's such a big defeater belief in the minds of the Jews? How could that, that gospel you're preaching could not possibly be true if you are so anti-law, anti-obedience? And Paul's response, by no means. Literally, may it never be. On the contrary, we, who preach justification by faith, uphold the law, stand it up, establish it, validate it for what it is. So Paul, not only does he adamantly deny that he's undermining the law, he actually goes so far as to claim that justification by faith is actually the thing that validates the law. It's actually justification by faith and not legalism that confirms the law and establishes the true meaning of the law. Well, how could that be? Think about this. Legalism has two fatal flaws. The first is that legalists don't actually succeed in keeping the law, right? We, we saw that whole point that Paul makes in these opening chapters. R Romans 2, 23, you who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? Rhetorical question, the answer is yes, guilty. So legalists clearly aren't the ones standing up the law, holding it up, because they break the law. Second, legalists actually distort the law by twisting it from a law of faith into a law of 
works, some meritorious way of earning from God. That is, the harder they try to keep the law in their own strength in order to earn something from God, the more their pride is exposed as they boast and the more they dishonor God himself. So those who are trying so hard on their own to keep the law so as to put God in their debt, they're actually not keeping the law. Anytime you see a flurry of self-righteous, religious-looking activity, you're not watching true obedience because God never called anybody to relate to him in that kind of way. That is sin. It's ironic. Moralists object that justification by faith will result in lawlessness, but it's actually their legalism that not only fails to produce obedience, but the kind of obedience it does produce is completely contrary to who God is and how God relates to people. Justification by faith, on the other hand, Paul argues, that upholds the law. Those who rely on God to work for them supremely through the person and the work of Jesus Christ, those who rely on God do not take that then as license to sin, but they actually obey God because they trust Him. Not to make Him owe them anything. Remember Romans 1, 5, and then stated right at the very end of the whole book, Romans 16, 26, like book ends to this letter. Paul says the aim of his ministry was to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all nations. The way of relating to God by trusting Him and because you trust Him, walking in His ways. Only faith can produce that kind of reliant obedience that honors God and glorifies God. Paul, Paul will elaborate on this in Romans 6 where he argues that your union with Christ does not mean freedom to sin but freedom from sin. For now, just listen to verses 17 and 18. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. How did that happen? This is the fulfillment of the new covenant promise. That God would change hearts and write his word on our hearts and cause us to walk in his ways. And those who trust in him are the ones who experience this. Romans 8 Three through four, Paul says, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, God condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. So you're right with God because you're united to Jesus and all of his righteousness covers you. And now being in right relationship with God, your obedience is not an attempt to earn anything from him, but it's it flows out of this reality that you are right with him. This is the way a, a child should learn how to obey their parents. If my son came to me and said, I'm, I'm trying to obey so that I can be your son. I would say, you've got it all backwards. You are my son. That's why you're called to obey. The order matters. Only faith in Jesus produces humility. Only faith in Jesus produces this unity. Only faith in Jesus produces genuine obedience. And, and that assures us that relying on Jesus is the only possible way to relate to God. 
wholeheartedly relying on God is the only way any creature could ever relate to an infinitely glorious creator. But no one ever has. We've failed to relate to him in that way. We've sinned against him. We have exalted ourselves over him. We do deserve his wrath, and so he provided his own son who always relied on the Father perfectly and then bore your guilt, your shame, took your sin to the cross, making a way for you to be brought back into right relationship with God, which is only by relying on Jesus. So trust him, trust him today, trust him tomorrow, trust him till you die. It's the only way ever to relate to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your lavish love, your great love that you have for us, which you have demonstrated to the fullest possible extent by giving your only son for us. Forgive us, O God, for looking to created things instead of to you. Forgive us for exalting ourselves over you, for thinking we could manage on our own without you. Forgive us for how we have belittled you and how we have treated your glory with scorn and contempt. God, forgive us for disbelieving you, not trusting on you, not relying on you, not clinging to you in faith. This morning we renew our response of faith. We are trusting you right now. Trusting Jesus alone for the forgiveness of our sins and for the fulfillment of every other promise that you so freely and generously make to us. We love you, Lord. Amen.